Welcome to episode 385 with my guest Tracy McCubbin. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Risk Podcast. You guys, I'm sure have heard of Risk. You love brutally honest stories, right? When you listen to this podcast, well, you got to check out Risk. You can hear stuff that you are not going to hear on radio. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes it's heartbreaking, like uh, the guy whose friend stopped him from murdering someone or the the teenager who discovered she was living with a cannibal, or the lady who found out the person she was sharing kinky fantasies with online, that's right, was with her dad. Uh, I've been on Risk twice. It's a great show. In fact, the opening voice on our montage this year is uh, the host, uh, Kevin Allison's voice. So uh, also check out the Risk book, which is coming out in July of 2018. So to find out more, uh, go to risk-show.com or just search on your podcast app for Risk. And I'll put a link under our show notes. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. I think of it more as a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. And mentalpod is also the Twitter and Instagram handle that you can follow me at. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we have moved most of our back catalog to uh, Stitcher Premium now. It was a financial decision that I had to make. I didn't want to do it, but I had to. And... Um, if you want to access those, we'll put a link under our show notes, but it's uh, stitcherpremium.com slash mentalpod, and um, tons, of, tons of great stuff there, um, going all the way back to the very first episode. What did I want to tell you? I looks like I've finalized my itinerary for the upcoming trip to record European people. And I'm very excited about it. I'm um, going to go fly into Dublin, spend a couple of days there, then go to Galway and back to Dublin, then up to Northern Ireland. I have some very exciting interviews scheduled up there. I cannot wait. And then uh, to Croatia, and I'm going to try to wing it there. So uh, if you live near Croatia and you think you have a... This is definitely the first time I've ever said this. If you live near Croatia and you think you have a story that you might want the world to hear, send an email through our website with some broad strokes of your issues and your story. And uh, obviously, you would you would need to get yourself to uh, Croatia. And uh, I'll be in Ramin, I think, as a ravine is how it's pronounced, R-O-V-I-N-J which is an area south of Pula in, in Croatia. But I can't wait. I cannot wait. This is an awfulsome moment that was filled out by Dave from Seattle. And he writes, The wonderful feeling I get <laughs> when I give up. Dave, if there's a group of people that get you, it's us. That... You know, like what is good giving up and what is bad giving up? Like giving up the desire to live, I wouldn't rate as like a great giving up, but giving up an idea of what our life 
is supposed to unfold like, I think is a great thing to give up because sometimes we can just try to squeeze a, you know, a square peg into a round hole with these preconceived ideas of who we are, especially if our ideas are grandiose. And for me personally, some of the things that I wanted so badly professionally didn't come to me until I stopped caring about whether or not I got them. Getting a half-hour Comedy Central stand-up special, um, getting a TV show. I, I had resigned myself to never getting any of those things. And I kid you not, within days of saying, I don't give a shit about that anymore, it happened. I got the TV show that lasted 16 years, and I got the Comedy Central half-hour special. And um, I don't know, maybe sometimes we want things too badly and the universe is like, eh, you know, I don't think so. I don't think so right now. If I had gotten everything I wanted when I was younger, I would be dead. This is an email that I got from um, a woman who is calling herself Peggy. Uh, she Obviously, uh, if you read this, hear this, you will know why she is not using her real name. But uh, I've been in correspondence with her a little bit. And she writes, uh, my name is Peggy. I work for a high-profile government agency, uh, American agency. The majority of us, both government and contractors, have to have a security clearance. We go through an initial security investigation, and then every five or so years have to be reinvestigated. Aside from grief or divorce counseling, we are prohibited from any kind of mental health care. Any antidepressants are a problem. A, quote, chemical imbalance is the only explanation the investigators will accept. If you can't remember the exact date that you started a medication, you are deemed untrustworthy. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are affected by this antiquated view of mental health care. Regular therapy is a verboten. You're not trustworthy. Only in the last 10 years were LGBT people accepted. Some are still in the closet out of fear. This is a terrible burden to put on people who provide services to our country. We are constantly bad-mouthed by the current administration for simply existing. We are demoralized, depressed, anxious, and filled with despair. We don't make a lot of money. Our very retirement funds are now being threatened. Money we contributed ourselves. Most people don't even realize what we do to make their lives better or safer. Our current leader especially, and he's proud of his ignorance. After all, ignorance is strength during these times. Well, first of all, thank you for writing that, but I have to say the characterization of, of him as ignorant is not fair because he is also petty and vindictive uh, and impulsive. He is essentially all of my worst instincts in a badly tailored suit. I think I... Th- I personally know when somebody really, really makes me angry, I recognize something in them that I don't like about myself. And it may not be to the degree that they are expressing that trait or flaw, but that's the only thing that can calm me down when I get so indignant about the way somebody is acting. Um, But I have difficulty sometimes accepting the people who are still defending him and not copping to the fact that he is unhinged. Uh, 
And the only thing I, I can tell myself to calm down is that they, that this is an emotional thing for them and that deep down they are in emotional pain and he is for them a really primitive coping mechanism for them to express their anger. Um, and there's a lot of angry f- fucking people. It's almost like a perfect storm. We, we have these two corrupt parties, Democrats and the Republicans, that have been corrupt forever. We have a nation, a large portion of which is emotionally unequipped to deal with life. And then you have a culture that brainwashes us into believing that materialism is everything and that dominance is better than humility. And then we call ourselves Christian. And this generation after generation, we buy into this. And and we're shocked that a cartoon of these worst aspects of us is now our president. And this is, like, if you listen to the taped phone calls from Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, they're all talking about Vietnam being unwinnable, but saying that they have to save face. There's an election coming up. This is, this is not a new thing. It's just more cartoony than it's ever been because as great as America is and as much as I love this country, our legacy, our government's legacy, and the legacy of a lot of intergenerational family dynamics is bullying, arrogance, dishonesty, and fear. And until I think we become more emotionally intelligent as a nation, we will elect people whose solution is to dominate and bully. I don't know. Maybe I'm on my soapbox, but this is, uh, I said early on in the, in the creation of the podcast that I want to avoid politics, but this has veered into an area where it is affecting more people daily, mentally, than I've ever seen politics affect people. And I can't, I can't ignore it. The elephant is shitting all over my keyboard. This is a shame and secret survey. I normally don't read these in the top of the show. By the way, uh, after the interview, we have some uh, really fascinating and some are pretty dark uh, shame and secret surveys on a variety of, uh, of topics. This one is filled out by a woman who calls herself Anxiety War. She is, let's see how old. She's 20. She's straight. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, No. And then she writes, although I said I haven't, I have had people slap my bum as they ran by. Many have, quote, accidentally touched my breasts, especially when playing uh, sports. Uh, And then in parentheses, basketball. Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. My family is one of those suck it up and live on. Yeah, speak of the devil, talking about, uh, although she used bum, she's probably English. 
and that's probably who we got that suck it up and live on from. Um, my family is one of those suck it up and live on type families. If I started to cry, I'd be ridiculed and laughed at and told to toughen up and stop crying or I'd get into trouble. As a child, my siblings and I grew up in a family where mom and dad hated each other. Mom even tried to subtly kill dad by overfeeding him to give him a heart attack. So our house was constantly filled with yelling and fighting and probably farting and often focused to me when my older siblings moved out. Also, my friends would make fun of my weight. I wasn't fat or obese or anything. I was just heavy, and they would make fun of that. Physically, mainly, it was from my younger brother. Although we love each other, we've had quite a few years and times when we hate each other. He would punch me and throw things at me and strangle me, so not much. No big abuse, but just stuff that adds together to become hurtful. My best guy friend helped me through depression and was like a soulmate. We were so close, but then another girl came, and he not only ditched being my friend to be with her, he lied to me for at least three years about them being together, even though I would have been happy, and I had already figured it out. So now we aren't exactly friends. We're friends, but not like we were. Also, my ex-unofficial boyfriend, after I told him he had, we had to be friends, spread rumors about me ruining his life and then blocked me from his life entirely. When I finally managed to force him to speak with me a year or two later, he shut me down. Any positive experiences with the abusers? They were all family members, close friends, or love interests, so when they emotionally hurt me, I can't think of how to respond because I love them. And that's the thing. When, when you're raised in a family that tells you to suck it up and move through it and don't cry, that, that's, that becomes your coping mechanism. And that's how we get leaders who, it makes sense that we will dominate. We will do this. There's no nuance to it. Um, anyways, continuing. Um, Darkest thoughts. I constantly think about how I could die, hit by a car, jump off a cliff, murder, suicide, manslaughter, disease, accident, natural. Most of the time it's suicide that I think of, since I wish I could just die and leave this earth. But I also love physical pain, so I like to imagine all the circumstances I could get hurt in. Cutting myself, burning myself, breaking a bone, getting bitten, getting shot, stabbed, etc. I make up fantasies where things like this happen. Darkest secrets. Um, I had a sexual over-the-phone relationship with a best friend slash boyfriend for a year when I was 15. We sexted, sent nudes, took videos of ourselves, er, you know, wanking, then sent them to each other, etc. But never in real life as we lived in different cities. After a year, we just stopped. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think incredibly lustful. Uh, I am a virgin. I have dot 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 have dot 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 had an addiction to pornography that I'm trying to break and I have too many taboo fantasies. I'm a straight female Christian virgin who has bisexual, polygamous, bestiality, rape, etc. fantasies. Nobody in my life knows this. I'm very ashamed about these thoughts. To me, being a straight female Christian virgin is not mutually exclusive of being bisexual, uh, polygamous person who fantasizes about uh, rape or bestiality to have a powerful orgasm. 
you're not doing these things in real life. Um, continuing, nobody in my life knows this. I'm very ashamed about these thoughts. I've always felt some sexual attraction to girls, their breasts, legs, but never romantically, I don't think. But I'm also incredibly sexually attracted to guys, and for some reason I have a strong longing for bestiality, though I have never done so. I think about it a lot, just with dogs, male dogs. Uh, polygamous is because it looks fun and turns me on. I wonder if she's thinking of polyamory. Um, anyway, uh, and rape, I don't know, just the thought of rough sex where I didn't actually consent but enjoyed it makes them, makes me, um, I think it's a typo, t- uh, then on, maybe it's turned on, though I know that it's bad. Uh, my sister was raped, I'm not stupid, I just have a stupid brain and sexual attraction to things. You know? A lot of times we're turned on by things that make us anxious, and there's a big difference between what is in your brain to make you come and what you're out doing in real life. Um, and sharing this makes me feel ashamed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my father, I don't like you. You're disre- disrespectful to your wife, your children, and your church. You lie and forget. You think you're the most important person and don't think about others. I don't like you, but I love you because you are my father. Uh, To friends, I love you all, but I don't feel like y'all love me. I can't say this to people. They don't like these types of things. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to read your survey. What about you? What about what you want? And this is what happens when we are raised in families that shut us down emotionally is they kill our ability to trust our instinct to advocate for ourselves. And this is what life looks like then for those adults. They become depressed, self-doubting, anxious. We have difficulty connecting, but we are not broken. We just need to find the people that we can connect with. What, if anything, do you wish for? Hmm, I wish that I could find something to do to help myself so I can help others. Um, I would just concentrate on helping yourself right now because you're, you're worthy of it, man. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. Some little bits with some people, but most of it's too risque for my Christian friends, and I'd be ridiculed and set apart and stuff, looked at differently. Well, let me ask you this. If you shared that stuff with if Jesus came back and you shared that with Jesus, do you think he would judge you? Do you think he would ridicule you? Or do you think he would love you unconditionally? I have the feeling he would love you no matter what. And that, to me, is what a Christian should be. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? Good and ashamed and sad. Uh, that That honestly is life. Good and ashamed and sad. Um, Anything you wish to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish someone was caring enough to not care about my past but love me anyway. Someone who wouldn't get freaked out about how I feel inside but would be willing to help and listen. Let me tell you, there are tons of people out there who feel exactly like you do, who are capable and willing to love you and are looking for your love as well. And it just takes time to find them. But 
instead of trying to change the people you're around or, you know, as the proverbial get, uh, trying to get water from a, a dry well, start visiting some different wells. Maybe check out a support group. And, um, of course, that's going to lead me to our, uh, our sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. I've been doing it for two years. I freaking love uh, my therapist, Donna. She is really helping me deal with my shame and, and self-doubt. That's one of the reasons why I related to your survey so much is it, it is you can understand something intellectually, but growing through it emotionally, that's the part that I need help. And I think most of us need help with is, um, yeah. And, and BetterHelp is online counseling. I think it's great. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of online counseling to see if it's right for you. And you need to be over 18 and there's lots of other great stuff about it. You can, you can uh, communicate through a variety of forms depending on, on what uh, you and your therapist agree upon. It could be email, live text, chat, voice, video. Uh, and you're not limited to just one session a week uh, for the the amount that you pay. Anyway, betterhelp.com slash mental, and make sure to include the slash mental part because uh, then they'll know you came from this podcast and that uh, and that the listeners listen. And then uh, this is the last thing I want to read before the interview. This is a very brief, awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself my childhood in a nutshell. And she writes, uh, My parents are visiting, staying with me. I came home from work yesterday, and I walked in the door, and my dad said, Have you been carrying that shit around in your car all day? That shit was my cap, gown, and sash from my master's program graduation the day before. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame, and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Tracy McCubbin, who is a, a decluttering uh, professional, and uh, you also got a book coming out uh, shortly. What is the name of it? Spring 2019. Spring 2019. What's it, the, the name? What it, if the name of it was Spring 2019, <laughs> but it came that, out in Spring be... 2020? <laughs> it, uh, it's called The Clutter Code. It's the seven emotional blocks to why you can't let go of your stuff. Um. There's a history of cluttering in your past. Uh, I don't know whether or not it was you personally or a loved one. 
Yes, I come from, I'm the child of a hoarder. My father is a hoarder, a diagnosed hoarder. Um, I also had a couple older generation relatives that were hoarders. Um, I, they're finding that hoarding is passed along genetically. It's an anxiety disorder, um, not unlike agoraphobia. They used to think for a long time they thought it was a symptom of OCD. Mm-hmm. They often go hand in hand, but it is its own separate diagnosis now. Right. Which would make sense that it, it because there's always anxiety with OCD. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it's amazing how many issues overlap into the next one, which is why it's so fascinating to talk about about these things because it's uh, it's it's just endlessly uh, complex. Oh, it is, and that's I mean that's the goal of the book, and that's you know I have thousands of clients under my belt. I've been doing this for eleven years. And I started to say, I'm not a therapist. I'm not. That makes two of us. Yeah, I don't. I I just, I'm making this all up. But having seen it, that I saw these patterns emerge, um, people having emotional issues and very specific ones. And everybody, male, female, age, socioeconomic, revealed itself to me. And I was like, okay, there's something here. This isn't just me. Uh, Give me some vignettes from growing up as the child of a, of a hoarder or paint a picture or whatever, whatever. You know, it's funny. We, I was, I had to, I was writing this the other day and I, you know, my father's very charming and he, um, very smart. Hoarders tend to be very, very smart. It's, it's an interesting, um, it's interesting because people sort of think they're like the crazy old lady with all the cats, mm-hmm. but they tend to be very smart so they can kind of talk themselves in and out of anything. But my dad used to have an old like 72 Carmen Ghia mm-hmm. uh, that the top never worked on. And we would be driving down the highway and he would slow down and we'd, he'd hang my brother out the side to like grab a tool off the side of the road. What? <laughs> Because it was like a perfectly good tool that had fallen off of a truck or something. Oh. I mean, he'd slow down to, you know, yes. you right. know a mile an hour oh, or something. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, seeing it growing up, it was always kind of an, uh, an eccentricity, right? And gotcha. it wasn't until later in life that we were like, oh, this is something. But Hold on one second. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to tilt your microphone down just a tiny bit. Okay, let's see how that is. Go ahead. Um, but I constantly watched him struggle with his relationship to stuff over and over and over again. And it took a toll. It took a toll. Paint a picture of what the house looked like, uh, or maybe the arc of his, is it fair to call it an illness, his disorder? I think, yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, I, he and my mother separated when I was pretty young. So I actually never lived with him. And interestingly enough, he was pretty transient. He would house sit for people or so he never, it was a long time until he was somewhere where it started to build up. So it took a long time for it to catch up with it. You know, you know, people are, uh, people are very good at masking those things. They don't want the world to see, you know, people create scenarios, um, People create scenarios to sort of either stay one one step ahead of things or one step behind. You know, it's it's the like I have a, you know, you, you, we all know an alcoholic who's opened a bar. You're like, what? Right. <laughs> Is that a good idea? Right. <laughs> you know, so I think that so his being kind of very nomadic for a long time was, I think, his own way of trying to manage it 
as opposed to actually looking at it and doing the work. So, you know, it's bad now. It's, uh, it's bad. It's, you know, and we, um, we try and help him as best we can, but it's Does really... he know he has a problem? uh uh-huh. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think it is that they're looking for in collecting things? Does it soothe them? Yes, I think... I don't think they're looking for something. I think they don't want to feel the feelings. Um, so it's I, something to f- distract them? Something to distract them. You know, I had a friend who was, a, I never smoked, uh, and I had a friend who was a smoker. And, you know, one of the smokers that would smoke, and then he would quit, and then he'd smoke again. And it was a, a forever a conversation of, like, I'm quitting smoking. And you're like, didn't we just go through this? Um, but he said to me once about smoking, he said, you know, the thing about being a smoker, he said, you know, I'm never lonely. I'm never at a party with nothing to do or no one to talk to. I can mm. be, if I'm uncomfortable, I'm out on the patio having a cigarette. You know, I'm not home alone on a Saturday night, not on a date. I'm having a cigarette. I'm staying home smoking and watching a movie. And I see that, I see that with hoarders. And I also see that with, my, with clients who aren't hoarders, with people who are using their stuff as, is yeah. literally like a buffer to their feelings. Food, drugs, shopping. It's all the same. And, you know, look. People. People. It's all this. We're at, a, we're at a crisis point in this country with our relationship to stuff, right? Cheap consumer goods. It's never been easier to shop. It is. The average home has over 300,000 items in it. What? Yeah. The average American home has 300,000. What? I know. Isn't that? No, it's. It, I, I mean, I want I, I, I know. I've never made that noise before. And that was <laughs> genuine. Like, what? I know. I, I know. And I, I can absolutely. Att- 20, only 25% of Americans can park their cars in their garage. I mean, we're just. We're drowning. We're drowning in stuff. And to me. The bigger picture is there's something else going on here. There's this level of acquiring has got to be about something else. I could I couldn't agree more. I I think that there is a spiritual famine in in this country, and by that I don't mean religious, but I mean a, a, a an emptiness that people are trying to fill through some other means that to me can only be filled through healthy spirit, healthy human connections in a sense of meaning and purpose but that's just that's just my opinion i would agree with that i i would agree with that i also think that um i think that shopping online shopping is gambling i think mm-hmm. it's that same you know that same hit of dopamine you get when yeah. you play the slot machines or when that you know the beer hits the bar top that same thing when you hit purchase on Amazon and you know and then you co- I mean and I'm guilty of this too I come home the next day and I was like well who sent me a package that's so exciting a little treat for me meanwhile I sent it to myself <laughs> and then I'm paying for it and so I think there's this cycle of something's going on that people are you know working too hard or you know there was an article in the New York Times recently about working parents two working parents with all of them were like, I don't feel like I'm doing anything good. I'm not showing up at work well. I'm not showing up in my family. You know, and so I think we're in such this overwhelm. And for some reason, we think that buying more stuff is going to fix it. Because on some level, it does. It's just so second. brief. It's yeah, so brief. 
Yeah. I mean, I think in the absence of having a script to walk through those uncomfortable feelings, that's the next thing that we reach for, maybe because it was modeled for us in our in our home growing up or I, uh, I think no, I think it's I think it's that it's gotten it's the glut of cheap consumer goods. You know, it's the same way that obesity is an epidemic. When as soon as food got cheap and as soon as food got easy to get, that's when people started overeating. Um, you know, when we used to have to like you know, run down the the pasture to take down a deer and to eat it. No one was fat then. It's the same thing with stuff. It's just it's just this glut of cheap consumerism, and then this sort of keeping up with the Joneses. Kind of a perfect storm. Yeah, of I think emotional it's a storm. deprivation and yeah, uh, yep. and then you know, then you to talk about what you said about a spiritual you know, f- lack of fulfillment, the sense of belonging and purpose, the sense of belonging and purpose. And I think that people look stuff has no meaning. It literally has no, most of this. You haven't seen my stuff, <laughs> but in the set, no, it showed up with no meaning. And then you imbibed meaning on it, which is yes. fantastic. Absolutely. And, um, but I think that people don't realize that they have that power within themselves, yes. you know? It, and so they, they just think like, I, this thing is so important. It's like, well, you decided that it was important and that's fantastic, but you need to take responsibility. You need to be accountable for your stuff. And, and I think that's what people aren't doing. And ask yourself, what would it be like if I didn't have this thing? Would I be okay? And I feel like if you, the answer you to are that something is no. Your, right. No, but you are, I tell people, you, I tell people all the time, my clients, you are enough without your stuff. Mm-hmm. You are enough. By the way, the bulk of the stuff we own is literally tools. A couch is a tool. Of course, it can be pretty and comfy, but it's a tool to sit on. A dining room table is a tool. All this stuff is tools. And everyone's like, but it's so, I can't, what would I do without it? And you're like, you'll be fine. You'll find a chair. You'll find a chair. (laughs) Which is the name of my next book. (laughs) Wait, that's my book. (laughs) And that's going to be followed up by, what about an ottoman? Uh, Yeah. For me, the day of reckoning that I have been too materialistic is when I hold a garage sale and I am face to face with my emptiness and my, what would you call it, lack of discipline, sadness. Um, The last one I had was about six years ago and it, it it was bittersweet because I had done a lot of work in my support groups and I wasn't feeling the emptiness that I had felt by buying all these things that I was now selling. Um, But it made me sad to see how empty I was that every day I needed a hit. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy a new guitar strap or I'm going to buy this tool and things I hadn't even opened. I was selling. And And then you're selling them for pennies on the dollar and then you feel like a Total idiot. You're like, I just, I might as well have just thrown $100 in the street. Right. Yeah, I know. So so when I'm in a store now and I'm thinking about buying something because the thought of buying it excites me, I imagine a guy in flip-flops and a mustard-stained tank top arrogantly offering me a quarter for it (laughs) under the beating sun. And that's usually enough. I'm on my way. You know, I had a, a, from the mouth of children, I had a friend of mine's, a friend of mine's daughter's friend, 13 year old girl. We were all out shopping in San Francisco and we were, 
I don't know where we were, Saks or something, and there was this gorgeous person. I was like, oh, I just this purse is so pretty, and I don't know, I have one kind of the same color, and it's, and it was not cheap. It was like four hundred fifty dollar purse, and I was like, oh, but it's, I don't know. And she was like, she just walks over to me, and she just puts her hand out, and she takes the purse out of my hands, and she stands in front of me, and she goes, which would you rather have, the purse, and holds it up for me, or puts her flat, outstretched hand, or four hundred and fifty dollars? And I was like. Oh, I want the money. She's like, great. Put the purse back. <laughs> I was amazing. like, that's so good. <laughs> it is so good. Uh, and so I think, you know, for me, Paul, I think what happens is I just see people really checked out about their relationship to stuff. They're not accountable for buying it. They don't, you know, they think, oh, I just bought it and it's done. It's like, no, you know, stuff keeps costing you money. You got to pay to store it. You got to pay to fix it. You got to pay somebody to haul it away when you're done with it. You got to clean it. You got to clean it. You got to, yeah. There's usually a manual that comes with it. There's receipts. There's. It's a whole thing. And, and so what I'm telling, you know, I'm not a minimalist. It's not. I also don't think that there's one sort of level of stuff that people should have. I think it, it's what, you know, what works for you in your life. But I also think people need to start being accountable. And what I always tell people is, you know, people always say to me, well, like, do I have a clutter problem or, you know, and I say, look, here's, it's a real simple test. Do you, does your stuff get in the way of the life you want to be living? Would you like to eat dinner on your dining room table with your family, but you can't because it's so full of stuff? Would you like to be able to park your car in your garage? Would you like to be able to get ready in the morning and just pull out an outfit and go? If your stuff isn't in a way, organized in a way that any of those things can happen, then clutter's a problem for you. So then how do you deal with the thing when you actually begin to say, should we get rid of this? And the feeling comes up in the person that, well, I can't throw away that stack of newspapers from the 1970s because there are, there are important stories in there. That those, I'm going to read one day. Right. Is that what you ask them? Is when, when was the last time you read it? Yeah, so I do a lot of... I, I, I'm sure it's some horrible bastardized of cognitive behavior therapy that I've just made up with like, you know, dental floss and chewing gum. But we look, I like historically, have you read these articles? How long have you had them? You know, and you, when you, and, and when people call me and when people hire me, there's a problem, right? So they're ready for the change. And oftentimes I'm just the sounding board to let them process. You know, a client said to me recently, she goes, wow, there's nothing like your clutter to make you confront your crazy. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that is so good. Who said that? A client of mine. Oh, man, that's good. As we were like, you know, pulling her mother-in-law's three different wedding dresses from her three different weddings to three different yeah. people. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, we process the feelings like... Yeah. Have, have you noticed, uh, and this is just a, uh, I don't know, an observation I had that could be totally off base, but the few people I have known who are clutterers are also very attached to traditions. Yes. Yes. So there, that's, I mean, that tends to be incredibly sentimental people. Yeah. Um, there are people who are very sentimental um, and sometimes... I think people who are s fall into the sentimentality tend to kind of have unresolved things about either childhood or they haven't processed the grief in the same way. 
Um, it's, it's, it's almost like it's that tradition is their way of letting someone get close to them. You can get close to me through objects from Christmas, but I can't feel that with you during Christmas because I can't really... Oh, that's um, interesting. That, I, I, that's what I've noticed is, is that there is a, a, an awkwardness or a hesitancy to be vulnerable with another human being and really talk about our feelings so we can, we can be gentle and vulnerable about how much we love Christmas, but we can't say to that person who is there for Christmas, man, I really love you. You are an important person in my life. That's really interesting. I have to think about that. I, I, I'm, I, you could be completely on to something. I, I, what I've tend to find too is that, uh, in that same way, you know how, you know how you see somebody and they, they're older, but they dress like, you know, they dress like it's 1972. And then in talking to them, you realize that's when they were the happiest in their life. Usually high school or yeah, something. high school yeah. exactly. Um, and I think that kind of with stuff like if someone had great Christmases as a kid, then all of a sudden Christmas becomes very important. So for me, observation, I've sort of seen people reliving things or Mm -hmm. trying to capture something that's gone away. But I definitely think stuff is a barrier to actually having to show up with people, for sure. Are there any specific examples that you can give us uh, in working with people or from your own personal life that, that you think can kind of exemplify um, what this battle looks like or what a success in dealing with it looks like? Um, oh, well, the struggle is real. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm working with people all the, you know, for someone like me whose stuff isn't a problem, you know, I could just go in there and go, well, just throw it all away or just donate it all. It, it, and do you call them dummy at the end of the sentence? I usually lead with it. Okay. I usually, Listen, dummy. Yeah. I usually say, well, yes. really? <laughs> <laughs> Pay me up front. <laughs> Stupid head, I think. Um, no, I have so much empathy. I mean, it really... I do too. I'm obviously being yeah, silly. No, of course. Yeah. I know you are. Um, you know, I deal with a, a ton of people who are dealing with depression and it's real, you know? And so to say to somebody, well, like, you, you know... Mary Poppins over here, I blow in and like, well, you'd just be so much happier if you just cleaned up your room. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like that. Depression, there is an odor to depression. Or the, oh, the, I, the, uh, yeah. Someone's room or house who is depressed, you can smell it in the unwashed bedding, uh, the clothes that need to be washed more frequently. It, It's, yeah, there is a smell. It's for sure. And, you know, so... For me, it's to. I feel like I'm the coach to get them. Let's let's do this. I will keep them keeping on. Like when they want to give up, because it's too overwhelming. I'm like, well, let's just you know, let's just do this. Let's just and 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 it moves them through. And you know, it's made huge differences in people's lives. To have a client, I had a client call me up. Uh, she hadn't let someone. She hadn't let someone in her house. That wasn't a repair person for twelve years. She'd never had anyone over to her house. And she wasn't a hoarder. She was a clutterer. It was yeah. cluttered, but it wasn't a, you know, a, she, but she was just, and so we, we spent a week and we got rid of so much stuff and old newspapers and everything. And then a week later, she 
sent me a text. She said, a friend of mine called me, was around the corner, wanted to meet for coffee. I could have them into my home. That must have been amazing for her. It was her. amazing. Ama I mean, imagine, imagine the sadness that that creates in a person that you can't just invite somebody over in a whim. That's what I always think about, that this is... And maybe that other person is going, they must not like me. Because they've never invited me over, well, and it's course, like the all, ripples yeah, from from that. It's like it doesn't happy? just affect you. No, 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 no. And you know, having people in our homes and breaking bread and sharing a meal—it's how we connect. So, if a huge part of your life you don't allow your friends in to see for what for whatever mm. reason, that's got to take a toll on everybody. And I think maybe that's what you were talking about with Christmas, and it's a way of keeping people at yes. arm's length. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like you are that little nudge of giving them permission to take care of themselves, despite the, the voice in their brain saying, we're stepping into the abyss. I don't know what that's going to be like. One, 100%. That's, I all, that's what all the time they say, you just gave me permission to let go. You know, I, help, I do a ton of clients after somebody's passed away. Um. And, you know, as Dr. Phil says, the amount of time you spend grieving someone who's passed away in no way shows how much you love them. I always say that the amount of stuff you keep from someone who passed away in no way reflects how much you love them. Right. You could keep one thing, you know, and usually what happens is the people who keep thousands of things are actually stuck because mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of it just weighs on them. They're like, Ugh, I don't even want this. I don't use it. But it was my mom. And I feel like how I'm a terrible person. Like I'm throwing her away. Uh, you know what's interesting? I've had more than one client say this to me when they, when a parent has passed away and they have notes. Mm -hmm. And this isn't like love notes or letters that the parent has written to them. This is literally like grocery lists and to-do lists. And they've said, every time I throw away something with his handwriting on it, I feel like he's dying all over again. I, I, I'm sorry to keep talking about my dog to the, to the listeners, but when my ex called me up and told me that nine months after Herbert died, she threw his food out, it was like he died again. Yeah. Because food was also like the most, the most important thing to him. It would make him so excited and happy. And it felt like we were throwing him in the, in the garbage, even though intellectually I knew that wasn't it. And I had another like three days of just crushing sadness. I, I call the, um, one of my assistants called, will come across a box and I'll have like letters and things of someone who's passed away. And you'll see the look on my client, the client's face. And my assistant calls it. She goes, Ooh, that's the box of tears. Let's not open that one right now. <laughs> and you know, for me, I'm like, feel the feelings. Of course it feels horrible. Of course you miss this person. Like, of course, of course, of course. But you know, first of all, no, none of my clients have ever been haunted. Like no one's come back from the dead and say, I can't believe you threw that letterman's jacket away. <laughs> and what I always say is I can only imagine that the people of past want you to be happy. And all of this stuff is not making you happy. Yeah. So they're, they're gonna, you know, they're trust me, just trust me on this. If they loved you, they want what makes you happy. Exactly. If, assuming it's not hurting somebody else. Exactly. So, but there comes a great burden with that, right? There comes a great burden. That's why I'm a big proponent of like, have it really spelled out. You know, where do you want your stuff to go? What really is, you know, get appraisals and figure out if things are really of value. You know, really like, I, I kind of 
what I like to say is like, clean up your mess before you die so that mm-hmm. someone else, because it's going to fall on somebody. Yeah, the, the stories that I have heard of people who have had to go into a cluttered deceased person's relative's house, they have the grief to begin with, and then there's this disorganized mess that they're trying to make sense of uh, while they feel like they can barely get out of bed because they're so sad. Um, that's. I mean, honestly, people say to me, Honestly, those are, this is, sounds so weird to say, but those are my favorite jobs to do because I feel like we are really helping somebody. Yeah. That to be able, um, you know, I had some, some clients, their brother and sister and their parents passed away in, out in Palm Springs area. And um, the house was, you know, it was a disaster. And they came in and they took what they wanted and they gave me the key and they were like, empty it. We don't care. We want to get the house on the market. And, you know, people kept saying, like, well, don't they want to come back? And I was like, look, they got right with themselves. They took what they wanted. They really don't care. Like, let them, you know, let them have this. Yeah. It's like if you want to keep things of a person, keep pictures. Keep keep some videos. Keep stuff that... Um I know look, that's, that's kind of my personal right. feeling. And I don't mean a library of things, but um, if you want to re-experience that person's light or you know whatever it was about them i don't think it's going to be their catcher's mitt uh holding their catcher's mitt but maybe that's just me (laughs) but you know what there are some objects that you know there are some objects that make you happy that's what i always say is keep the things that really make you happy so how do you know when it's too many uh, well, if you're paying, you know, $250 a month for an offsite storage unit to keep all your dead mom stuff, that's okay. too many. Okay. Right. If there's a room in your house that you can't use because it's full of aunt, dead aunt Ina stuff, that's too many. She was intolerable. Ugh, aunt Don't aunt even Ina. bring her up. Why you would bring her up on this podcast? See that one. Oi, dummy. You know what's <laughs> funny? I had an aunt Ina. You did. I did. <laughs> Doesn't yes. everybody? Yes. I actually think she would have been a, like a great, great aunt. Um, who gives a shit, Paul? No, Paul, please let us know. Was she a great, great aunt? Was she a great aunt? <laughs> you know what? We're going to take a moment to break to go on um, 23andMe so we can figure out exactly who <laughs> Aunt Ina is to Paul. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, when is it a problem? When's it too much? Look, in our heart of hearts, we all know when it's too much. Everybody knows. They're like, yes. this is we, just, we say it to ourselves. This is too much. I got to get rid of all this stuff. Yeah, you're tripping over things. Yeah, you can't find things. Can I can I swear on here? Yeah, yeah. You can be moving shit out of the way to step over it, and you know, and it's yeah. a it's a it's a heavy it's a he, it's heavy to keep that stuff. And what is the difference between an organizer and a declutterer? Ooh, good question. Um, so an organizer is someone who comes in and puts like with like and puts things in bins and makes matching pretty labels and just, you know, I don't know, you're probably not on Pinterest and you probably don't follow. Like, I've done a, a little bit of Pinterest. Well, I don't, there's like a whole movement of like perfectly organized pantries now where everything's mm-hmm. in baskets with chalkboard and, you know, it's that. Whereas I feel like you, it's impossible to be organized without decluttering first. Yeah. So I go in and do the decluttering, and then we organize afterwards. But you, if you have too much stuff, you can't be organized. That's the, look, number one question. People are like, how do I get organized? I'm like, have less stuff. What are the most common things that people hold on to that you help them 
consider getting rid of that they then say, oh, my God, I'm so glad I got rid of that? Uh, magazines that they're never going to read, right? Magazines everywhere. Oh, I'm going to get to this. I'm going to read this. And is it because that magazine was expensive or rare, or is it just they remember that part of their life when they were happy? No, they think they're going to read it someday, uh, okay. that they're sort of information junkies and, and that there's I something... See you know, that there's a piece of information that they're going to miss out on. Right. In the internet, you'd never be able to find exactly. that same piece of information. <laughs> or that information hasn't been regurgitated. Right. I did have a client say to me, he was, it was pretty funny, it made me laugh. He goes, he would look books everywhere. And he goes, oh, oh yeah, no, I, I'm not going to die until all these books are read. And I was like, did you make a deal with God? Right. It's like, yeah, I, I'm onto something. Yeah. Um, so things that we're going to read, books, magazines, newspapers, Clothes are a big one. You're not going to wear it again. You know? Just, and, and it has nothing to do with your size changing. It is a little, that's one of the things, but it's also like, you know, it's gone out of style. You know, you only wear 20% of your clothes 80% of the time. There's only so many hours in the day. So you, you're just not, you're not going to wear it. And when you pare down a closet, you have an organized closet that makes getting dressed super easy. Look, I love clothes. I mean, I'm a, I love clothes, but it's about having the clothes that you wear yeah. and that you love. Clothes so, are a big one. So do you think I should get rid of the sailor suit from when I was eight? <laughs> well, here's what I'll make you do, which I did to a client recently. If you can still wear it, if you can put it on and go to Starbucks and get us coffee, I'll let you keep it. He had a pair of dolphin shorts. Remember dolphin shorts? The f I hated them when they were popular. I <laughs> was I like, said these him, are awful. He's like, I wear these all the time. And his wife and I were looking at him. We're like, and I said, okay, if you wear them all the time, put them on and go to Starbucks and get us a coffee. And he threw and, them right out. And he just was like, ugh, threw them away. <laughs> wow. Uh, what are some other things? Um, you know, photos are interesting because... And this is very controversial and people, I get lots of backlash about this, but I think, you know, look, if you have, okay, I'll, I'll show you an example. I was helping a client whose father, whose parents had both passed away and they were selling the family home. And we came across boxes of photos that they had printed her parents in triplicate of like all the cruises that they went on in the eighties. First of all, there were like maybe of the hundred photos so 300 in triplicate. There were maybe five that had her parents actually in them. The rest were like on the deck of the cruise ship or the Alaskan glacier. Mm -hmm. I was like, throw them away. Yeah. Like, what do you, you know, you, this wasn't your vacation. These aren't even good pictures of your parents. Like the blurry shot over the side of the ship. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Like they probably your dad, her dad took when he was just holding the camera and not paying attention. Yeah. So I think photos can be pared down. Also, like how many pictures of your drunk friends in college do you need? Six. Ooh, oh, I thought that was. A I question. said five. Okay. Usually, I say five. All right, so, so we're on. We're on track. So I'm extravagant. <laughs> and um, by the way, are there any non-drunk pictures of friends from college? Not that I've ever. Because I don't seen. have any. I I have never I have never not seen drunk college. Yeah, I don't know if a picture exists of me from college that I am not embarrassed by, other than how how what my body looked like. That's the only thing I like. About about those old pictures, but the rest of it is like you are a mess. <laughs> a hot you mess. You are a mess. What did a friend of mine say to me recently? We were looking at old pictures, and she goes, oh, "I wish I was as skinny as I was when I thought I was fat." <laughs> <laughs> I'm fat. 
My God, the people you are around with have so many quotes that I want to steal. Uh, you, you, can, you can steal away. Yeah. Um, yeah, photos are a big one. Books are a big one. You know, they're sort of, I mean, we're getting into really interesting times of like China, right? Like, do people set a formal table anymore? Do you hang on to that? You know, you know how are people, how are you entertaining? That stuff is, that stuff is tricky. I have yet to go to a contemporary's house where it it's the thing that the parents used to do with the china oh, set a table. and the special settings and all of that it to me it's like the opera good riddance good riddance it has never to me it's just always felt like and now i'm a different person <laughs> this is the fancy me well it doesn't it just feels you know my assistant one of my assistants is uh, El Salvadorian she's I think she came here when she was eight maybe ten um, uh, she's a citizen now but El Salvadorian heritage and so she's super fascinated like you know she like she watches all these videos on how to make a perfectly perfect bed and she mm -hmm. kind of loves all that stuff and and so one day she said to me, she's like, well, why do we do it this way? And I can't remember what it was about. It was literally like how you set a table or something. And I said, honestly, just watch Downton Abbey. <laughs> like all these are holdover from That's where it all comes from. That literally like the great manners of the day. That's why all, you know, and she was like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, you'll appreciate this story. So my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, I was very, very close to and she um, she had lived in Hawaii during the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So my dad was born in Honolulu, and they were actually walking on the beach at, at Waikiki, and he pointed up, because one of the first words he said was plane, and my grandma looked up and she saw the Japanese what? flying and dropping the bombs on Pearl Harbor. Oh my God. Know, isn't that crazy? So, so but Hawaii, so Hawaii's always been a big part of our lives, and, and I love kind of Hawaiian, everything Hawaiian, and so, uh, I had gotten from her a box of table linens. This is speaking to your decorating a table. And there used to be a department store there called Liberty's and Liberty House. And it still had the ribbon on it. It had never been used. So my grandma had had it since 1941, probably. So I, I had a party and I, we did a Hawaiian food and I decorated it with all these linens. And it was a great party and everyone had a great time. And everyone kept saying, where are these from? And I said, oh, they were from my grandma's house. And they're like, what? Why are you using them? Aren't you afraid they'll get ruined? Like, oh my God, you have to save these. And I said, for what? What, yeah. What am I saving them for? Like the shroud of Turin to be wrapped in when I die? I'm going to have gravy my last day alive. <laughs> and then the next day I went to wash them and they all disintegrated. And I realized if I'd kept them in the box any longer, they would have just disintegrated. And I yeah. thought, they had one great party. Like yeah. use your stuff. Enjoy it, people. Enjoy it. Like, what are you saving for? That's what's, that's always what's interesting to me. I'm like, well, I'm saving this for a special occasion. I'm like, you're special. All you have is, is the moment. Be uh, special today. Yeah. Wear your fancy pants today. <laughs> well, hold on. I'm going to go put my tux on. <laughs> or uh, your sailor suit. Or my sailor suit. I can only get my foot uh, <laughs> in it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to wear it, but I'm going to, uh, oh, compulsively I want to see it on, I want to see it on Instagram. I want to see a foot in that sailor suit. <laughs> uh, do you know that Burning Man was started because they wanted to, uh, the person who started it, and I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering this in some way, but the idea was for these people to gather and everybody would bring an item 
like their favorite item, something maybe that they were attached to and to burn it. On Baker's Beach in San Francisco, I believe. Um, Yes, I think yeah. that is where it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a way to detach from Look, we've being had attached to things. Our, our version, <clears throat> the declutterfly version of a funeral pyre is the giant mobile shredder. I've had plenty of post-divorce clients where I'm like, oh, no, that wedding album in the shredder. Yeah. We, like, we give it a Viking burial. Do like, you? Oh, yeah, it's great. I'm like, because this big mobile shred truck comes up and the engines and the yes. grinding. And I'm like go for it and they'll just like chuck you know photo albums and photos of ex-wives or ex-husbands into the back of the truck and watch it grind up it's awesome what, we all cheer what a, a great um energy you you an attitude you bring to what it is that that you do i'm just picturing you with clients and it's like when you talk about this you really kind of light up like you bring this spirit to it that must be really soothing uh, to people that is very kind and I uh, I try because I also feel like a couple things I feel like it's a it's a daunting task for a lot of people and it's not fun for them so let's make it enjoyable as much as possible it's also also I don't want to be bored like I yes. want to have fun too <laughs> yeah. but it's also this is really profound you're letting me into your home and I'm touching your stuff and this is you know, there's so few kind of rites of passage or traditions or moments of, like you said, even grieving or letting go. Like, let's take a let's take a moment. We uh, we had a client, one of my favorite clients, and um, we cleaned out her garage, and her garage was her bane of existence, and it was all empty. And I looked at my assistant, and he um, he put on. Uh, Sugar Sugar by the Archies, and we just did the twist in the middle of our empty garage, the three of us. <laughs> She's like, I can't believe I'm dancing in my garage. So, you know, I think that there's, like you said, like you kept it for a reason. So acknowledge the work that you've done as opposed to just throwing it all, you know. The, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I think there's something deeper. Sometimes, too, I will say to myself when I'm debating whether or not to throw something out is, well, what if I give it to somebody else? That would be even better because then I would feel like I'm not wasting it, that I'm actually giving it to somebody so that they can use it more than I would be Do able to. Do you see me doing the victory dance yes. over here? That is my, that's what I tell people all the time. That, look, we're, we don't want to be wasteful, but the way, here, this is a perfect example. This is what clients all the time. They're like, oh, I have all these old sheets and towels and I'm, they're stained and I'm not going to use them, but it feels so wasteful to throw them away. I'm like, give them to me. Once a month we go to the animal rescue and we take all these old sheets and towels and drop them off at the animal. And they're like, what? I have more. You know, so if you know it's going somewhere, then um, it's so much easier to let go of. We work a lot with agencies that work with kids in the foster care system. One of the things for kids in the foster care system is that they show up, they don't have suitcases. So they show up to their court dates or they move from home to home with their stuff in a black trash bag. Mm -hmm. you, for listeners who haven't listened to the episode with Tiffany Haddish yet, that was, that was her childhood. And, and she, she, talks, talks, she, she talks about it. She gets very emotional in talking about it, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I, I'll have to, I look for, A, I love her. And I, I can tell you many stories about this. So when I heard that, I was like, what are you, like I have tons of clients who are in production or uh, you know, who have swag and have 8 million duffels that say, you know, the Joey Lawrence show or whatever. 
And so we started collecting them, and um, we have a couple different places that we take them to. And recently, one of my guys was dropping a whole bunch off at a whole bunch of suitcases. So he had like 30 suitcases, and he was taking it to the Covenant House, which is a place for homeless teens. And there was a girl in the lobby who had been sex trafficked, and they had helped her reunite with her family. She hadn't seen them in a couple years. They were putting her on a Greyhound bus to go home, and she had her stuff in a garbage bag. Uh-huh. And my guy was like, oh, no, no, wait, I got it. And like helped her pack a suitcase. And like, that, like he just said, she, she's like, she was like, my family's going to think I'm rich. Yeah. And you were like, here's a girl who's, who's gone through unspeakable things that I can't even imagine. And to get off a bus holding a garbage bag to be able to have a suitcase. And so for that's a huge thing that we do. And we separate them out and we take them different places. And when my clients hear that, they're literally like, I've got six more, you know? So mm-hmm. I always tell people if letting go is hard for you, do a little deeper dive and don't just drop it off at the Goodwill. Not that the Goodwill doesn't do good work, but if it's easier for you to go a little deeper to something that directly affects something that speaks to you, it's gonna be easier to let go. So are you saying that I shouldn't just push it out my window while I'm speeding down the freeway? I would say let's not do that. (laughs) Well, note to self. I've always enjoyed watching it explode in my rearview mirror. Isn't that an old-timey movie? I feel like there's so many old-timey movies where there's... (laughs) Tracy, any joke I have is (laughs) (laughs) old-timey. And is that O-L-D-E? Whatever the worst one is. Whatever the the most shop-worn... Uh, roll your eye. Uh, anything else you'd like to to share with uh, the listener or me? You know, I would say I would say because I imagine that, and you and I have talked about this that so many of your listeners are dealing with you know mental health issues and depression issues, and that and that you should feel happy in every room in your house. It should bring you joy. And if there's something that's going on with you and your relationship to your stuff that's inhibiting that, maybe it's time to look at that. I love it. Tracy, thank you uh, so much. And where can people find you online if they want to know more about you? They can. They can find me at tracymccubbin.com. I'm on Instagram at Tracy underscore McCubbin. And Facebook's a big place. Tracy McCubbin on Facebook. And it's M C C M little C big C U B B I N. Like McMuffin, only McCubbin. Thanks, Tracy. <laughs> Thank you. Many, many thanks to to Tracy. And um, I'll put a link to all of her stuff under our show notes. Uh, that audio was a little funky on that one, and I figured out what it was afterwards. I had a button pressed in that shouldn't have been pressed in. So uh sounded like there was a little, I don't know, staticky, a little bit of background noise. But uh, I was recording people in the living room before, and it was just a little too echoey. And so now I have put a bunch of sound foam in um, a little room, and it should sound a lot better, a lot more um, intimate, dare I say. I wish you could see the pompous face I'm making right now. Let's get to some, uh, let's get to some soybeans. Huh? Shall we? 
This is a uh, an email that I got from a person who wants to be called Jay. And Jay writes, I hope it's okay to email you about this. Uh, I just feel that if there's anyone that can understand this situation and maybe offer any advice, it would be you. So thank you in advance. I guess I feel bad confessing some of this stuff as this is about someone else, but they will never know and it is affecting me too. My friend is very, very ill. She's tried to kill herself multiple times this year and had a horrific experience being hospitalized. I saw her for the first time in months yesterday as she is now allowed to live with her flatmates again. It was really nice, and to me, I thought she was doing much better. But upon getting drunk, she started to confess some things. She doesn't want to share her new diagnoses with us as she is ashamed, which is fine, but I'm sad for her. She also was saying how ill she does feel and that she has a date set for the next time she tries, and if she doesn't try, then she would sort everything out. None of this was said to make us act or feel a certain way. She was purely confessing. I feel so worried about her. I cried on the train home last night because I just don't know what I can do. We tell her all that she needs to hear. We are here to support her. She is loved. Things get better with the right treatment over time. She just feels at a loss, I think, and I don't know what I can do to make her better. I am there for her, but I know that's not enough, and I don't know what I can do to try and prevent her from going, from doing the unthinkable again. It's even sadder because she is so young and has been through so much. She's only 19, and I'm only just turning 21 myself, and I know it will get better for her. I apologize for letting this out on you. I uh, just thought you might have some good advice for what I can do to help her and myself to cope. Um, and I wrote, uh, I'm so sorry your friend is going through that and that you feel responsible for her well-being. Um, the drinking is a red flag to me. I don't know if she has a pattern of abusing alcohol, but if she does, no headway will be made until she gets help for her drinking. The untreated alcoholic, if she is one, has such a distorted picture of themselves and the world, not to mention they're pouring depressants into their body every day while trying to fight depression. You may have to set up some loving boundaries with her. Tell her that you love her, but if she's going to invite you into her struggle, she needs to be doing all she can to get professional help and help in a support group. If she is trying her hardest in working with her psychiatrist and doing all that is suggested of her, that would be a different case. You might offer to go to a support group meeting with her, and you should consider going to one for yourself to help navigate this, perhaps one of the codependency or something like Al-Anon, especially if you grew up with a parent who had an addictive personality. Um, I've heard that CODA and ACOA are good programs. Um, you can find out more by just Googling codependence, um, friend who's suicidal or friend who's an alcoholic. Uh, there's also an online 12-step uh, website called intherooms.org, and it's either .org or .com, but they have online meetings for people who are in the boonies. Um, anyway, I, I hope some of this helps, uh, but just because she is in pain doesn't mean you should subject yourself to feeling drained and in fear of her taking her life. You might even tell her, 
that if she is planning on killing herself and tells you that you will feel responsible for not stopping her, so you will have to call her have to call to have her hospitalized. The untreated alcoholic is usually unaware of the effect of their actions on others. Anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, By the way, it doesn't have to be alcohol. In general, any untreated addiction, be it disordered eating, sex, gambling, love addiction, etc. Anyway, uh, just keep in mind, I am not an expert. I'm a jackass that cooked chicken on basic cable. This is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by a gay man who calls himself Bright Sparked, Bright Spark Dead Flame. He's in his 40s, was the victim of sexual abuse, and one of which he reported. Uh, another of which he never reported. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. And he writes, um, I feel I was surrounded by hypersexual kids growing up. I was babysat by different people as a child. And while I have no specific recollection of these early experiences, I am certain I was either molested or messed with. Due to my dislike of being left alone when my parents went out after my sister left for boarding school when I was nine, my parents hired a babysitter who was more a companion as she was only three years older than I. We would play strip guess who, and this culminated in her instigating sexual games and attempted sexual intercourse. When I was then encouraged to babysit a year later to earn pocket money, and as my homosexual hormonal drive began to develop, I systematically reenacted these sexual scenarios with the boy I babysat. I was far too young to have these responsibilities. I was all too aware of the social stigma of my sexuality. It was suffocating. Um, I carried enormous shame until I was well into my 30s. I experienced the shame throughout my adult, uh, through my adult judgment, unable to see that I was too young to be given those responsibilities and that I was a sexually frustrated and uneducated child, not a pedophile as my adult brain insisted through toxic shame. This shame limited me on multiple levels. I have worked through this with two therapists and have mostly reached a place of self-acceptance. Uh, remembering these, what feelings come up? I still feel shame, even if I have worked hard to repair myself, and this was exacerbated as the parent confronted me aggressively and accusatorily many years later via social media. Isn't that what social media is for? Uh, when I was into my 30s, she wished me misery, claimed I had ruined her son, and said she could see from my photo that I was a repulsive pervert. She sounds like a terrific lady. The fact of the matter is that this happened when I was 10 years old. I was not responsible, but the years of internalizing the shame and the subsequent growing fear of being exposed paralyzed me emotionally in many ways. Do you feel any damage was done? The intention was innocent and natural, but I think the fact that I was gay and felt more repressed as a result made the shame association more prevalent. It took me many years to realize that it wasn't what happened when I was a babysitter that ruined the boy I babysat and that the parent who confronted me was most likely coming from a place of denial, frustration, and repression. Um... Yes, to you know, to any person who who is like, well, you know, that guy is c- completely absolving himself of any responsibility. To which I would say, 
whoever it was that, uh, what's the word you would, sexually violated that female babysitter that violated him. Take it back to, the ripples go back generations. So blaming it on a single person, um, it's not about blame, it's about healing. And yes, obviously we need to protect people in our society and figure out who's dangerous and who is not, but judging an adult for something that they did when they were 10 um, is is just not not fair. And um, people that have a problem with that, I think, um, don't understand the, the, I don't know, you understand what I'm saying. I don't need to, I don't need to go on and on about that. But so often as adults, when we picture our childhood and we're like, oh, I should have fought back. I should have told that person to fuck off. We're always picturing ourselves as like a shrunk down adult version of ourselves. And we forget what simplistic views of the world we had as, as kids. When I was 11 years old, I still thought my idea of how babies were made was that a man and a woman had sex once and then the babies just continued to come out randomly like a slot machine for the rest of her life. That's an 11-year-old. So when I start to go, oh, you know, I had my fucking boner out and, and whatever, at, at 11, I was a child. I was a child. And I'm talking, of course, about the getting a boner when my mom was giving me a bath, but that's another story. This is a happy moment filled out by Frida, and she is in her 30s. She writes, I am now a therapist, but it was a long road full of struggles to get here. From childhood abuse in a severely dysfunctional family, nearly two decades of chronic suicidality, and adult development adult domestic violence. Life is still inevitably complicated, but I'm here now doing what I've been working towards for the better part of the last decade. I really love days like this when I have a bit of a hectic morning because I'm talking on the phone and emailing with potential new clients, driving to my office to have a session that took an unexpectedly exciting direction, and now chilling, lying back on the couch. Yes, we lie on the couches when you're not here, with my feet up, drinking iced tea under the sunny window for a while before my next client shows up. I'm reminded of the sunny day almost 30 years ago when I decided I was ready to have my dad take the training wheels off my bike and I glided around the neighborhood aerodynamic on my pink and purple wheels. Like, look, Ma, I'm really doing it. I'm really riding. That's awesome. Any comments to make the podcast better? I think it's cool that you have so many celebrity guests now, but my favorite episodes are the ones from regular people or folks who are off the beaten path in some way. Uh, not necessarily some eminent expert in their field or celebrity. There's a lot of wisdom out there in the margins. Yes, if I if there weren't financial concerns about um, gaining listenership to keep the podcast afloat, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't really uh, care that much about getting higher visibility people on the podcast. But 
the reality is higher profile guests bring more listeners and more new listeners in. And that is, again, one of the financial necessities that I don't like to have to do. So there you have it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself M. Jem. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I honestly am not sure if it even, quote, counts as sexual abuse. I got drunk at a fraternity in college with a guy I thought was my friend, and he ended up bringing me up into his room and laid me on his bed and kept trying to get on top of me and kiss me even when I told him no and said I just wanted to sleep. That is a violation right there. Even if nothing more happened, that is a violation. Uh, He would keep pressing his erection into me, telling me it would be fine and it could just be for that night. I kept telling him no and had to run out of his house to go back to my apartment. I cried and cried after, but I still don't know if it can be considered sexual abuse or not. The fact that you were crying, the fact that you ran back to your house, uh, you also wrote, all I know is I felt terrible about it afterwards and haven't told anyone what happened. So what I see is tears, fleeing, feeling sick about it, and keeping it a secret. If something, do we do we do do we do those things around something that wasn't traumatic to us, and it doesn't matter what his intent was when it comes to you healing. What matters is you giving weight to that pain and finding someone safe to share it with, be it a therapist or a support group, um, or or a trusted friend, and. And start start the process of healing because you can heal. We do heal. I've healed from some shit that I never thought I would heal from. And it takes a long time. And it's not graceful. And it's not linear. And it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back. But it is so much better than staying in that frozen place of shame and fear and doubt. And um, and your your story is sadly all too common all too common uh she's also been emotionally abused a guy that i dated in college constantly was trying to change me manipulate me and mold me into his ideal woman he tried to force me into catholicism implied that i was weird for not wearing high heels or more makeup or more expensive clothes and just constantly put down all my interests hobbies and even my upbringing I started feeling terrible about myself and did try to change myself, which caused even more problems in the relationship. He gaslighted me throughout the entire relationship. I felt like I was going insane. It was because of him I had to go back on my anxiety and depression medication. I honestly don't even feel that bad about it, at least currently, because it showed me how to notice signs of manipulation and emotional abuse, and I don't tolerate it at all anymore. Wouldn't that be great if we taught how to recognize signs of manipulation and emotional abuse in school. My God, think of the think of the terrible paths that some people could be diverted from. 
darkest thoughts. I often hope that those around me, especially close friends, will fail at achieving some of their goals so I can feel better about myself. The Germans actually have a name for that called Schattenfreude. And uh, you'd be shocked how many people uh, get schadenfreude. I've experienced it in my life. Immediately felt like the worst person in the world. But you're not alone in that. I worry that my OCD and anxiety has fucked me up to the point where I will never be able to maintain close relationships and friendships. I haven't been able to up to this point. I always either find flaws in people or they stop talking to me. That to me sounds like um, like an issue of boundaries and intimacy, and they go hand in hand, boundaries and intimacy, because for there to be intimacy, there needs to be an understanding of boundaries. Otherwise, what you get is avoidance or enmeshment. Um, and boundaries and intimacy require nuance and difficult conversations and communication, and uh, and it takes time. It's uh, it takes practice. Darkest secrets. I recently cheated on my boyfriend by having sex with a high school aged male during a night of drinking. I'm 25. I have no idea why I did it, and I'm just trying to remove it from my memory. I don't know if that's necessarily healthy to just try to remove it from your memory. And um, I don't know, high school aged could mean 14 or it could mean 18. So um, I don't know what to say about that because uh, each of those would be, I think, vastly different um, situations. But I think... I think finding um, ways to deal with all these feelings is is the only way out. And if drinking is an issue, that's going to have to be dealt with too. Uh, she writes, "I am a non I am non confrontational and a constant people pleaser. This has resulted in me gossiping behind friends, gossiping behind friends' backs, and pretending I don't like them, and revealing friends' secrets in order to gain approval, and then lying about it later." Yeah, that's that's. This is man. This is what wreckage looks like in our lives when 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 we're in that place where we're so empty and insecure. I, I was that way for years where I would have to put down other people to raise myself up because I simply didn't have anything organic to raise myself up. I, my self-esteem was so low. I was so starved for attention. None of this means that you are a bad person. It just means you're hurting and you don't have good tools in place to cope with life. And that's for me, why I started this show is because I was so lost for so much of my life and I can still be lost. And I need to go to those tools that I oftentimes don't want to go to. Um, but they're what saved my life and gives give me a life that I enjoy. And they're there for you too. Um, 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've always been interested in incorporating sex toys and props, even costumes and role play into the bedroom. I've always been fairly vanilla and my boyfriend is not very experienced, so I'm worried he will reject those ideas. It doesn't really make me feel anything because it isn't anything all that abnormal in my opinion. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and I think... Uh, the story you shared at the top about that experience with that that guy um, violating you would be a great place to start in unpacking a lot of this shit. Because one of the things I see happen over and over again is people who are preyed upon as young adults generally had their instinct shamed or beaten out of them as children by by their caregivers. Um, not necessarily violently, but uh, that there was some type of emotional invalidation. So I guess what I'm saying is this is usually a part of a larger picture of negative self-beliefs, how we view the world, our fear of people, um, and that being at odds with our desire to be loved and seen and felt. And there is a way to connect both of those two things, but it takes work and it takes a lot of time. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Iris, and she writes, I suppose this is more of an awful slash dark plus sweet moment, but here goes. Yesterday, I went in for my first pregnancy appointment. My husband and I unintentionally conceived on our honeymoon. The past couple months have been filled with anxiety and fear. We really wanted to wait to have children for financial reasons. But we finally settled into the excitement and getting our shit together mode. As the ultrasound technician was quiet, taking a painfully long time to find anything, she finally turned to me and said, Your baby stopped growing about two weeks ago. There's no heartbeat. I'm so sorry. Stunned and confused, we went through the rest of the appointment on autopilot as compassionate nurses took us through back entrances so other patients couldn't see how hard I was crying. When my husband and I got home, we just held each other on the bed as I wept. The next thing I knew, our Australian shepherd, Gertie, jumped on the bed and snuggled into my front. There I was, sandwiched between my husband, who was telling me how loved I am, not to feel shame or guilt for what happened, and good old Gertie licking away my tears while somehow sprawled on her back and demanding a belly rub. My husband and I laughed through our tears and obliged as we patted her flurry, her furry, fluffy tummy. There's so many things that I love about this survey. Um, This to me is a model of what we could be as people and how we cope with the shit that life throws at us. I mean, the way the nurses handled it, the way the ultrasound person handled it, the way your husband handled it, the way you handled it, and the way your dog handled it. It's just... It's all about the support and the healing and the... And the schmutzing and the schwitzing and the... Oh, yeah. Ugh. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Stick Man in a Stick World. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I've struggled most of my life with mood disorders and ADHD, but the ADHD hasn't been diagnosed until recently. Recently, I found a name for something I've experienced my entire life. Rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Apparently, it's an extremely common symptom for those with ADHD, and it explains a great deal about why I've struggled so much throughout life. I'm a single, good-looking, or so I'm told, fit, somewhat charming guy with a good job. It's usually not too terribly difficult for me to find dates. The problem is when I'm set back by someone, or when it even seems like I've been set back, say by somebody not texting for a few hours, I get this terrible feeling like my heart's going to implode and I can barely function. Negative self-talk sets in, and it's not uncommon for me to end up curled up on my floor in my house. It's just too painful to do anything else. It has ramifications outside of my love life, but the interpersonal relationship bit is what's causing me so much distress. I want to go out and find somebody to share my life with, but every setback is an incapacitating disaster. It's maddening. I'm writing this because I'm in the middle of going through this process again. A girl seems to have disappeared three days after our first date, where we really seemed to hit it off and shared a fantastic goodnight kiss. I know logically that it's not a big deal and that my emotional response is way out of proportion to what's actually happened, but I can't seem to come to terms with it. It's difficult to be vulnerable with people and put yourself out there when the small things wound so deeply. I'm giving her space and hoping that she gets back in contact with me because I, quote, really like this girl. In the meantime, I'm at a bit of a loss as to what to do with myself. Distracting myself with work only works about eight hours a day, and my place can only get so clean. I have the rest of my life in relatively decent order. I have great friends, a great job, my own house, and I've risen above most of my problems. This alone, though, keeps following me. I wish I knew what to do about it. Um... I can't help but wondering if if there is if somebody that deals with OCD and exposure therapy could help with this um because at its base is fear and fear kind of being exaggerated and I know that exposure therapy can work for people that have um OCD, so I don't know. It's just just a thought. Again, I'm not a professional. I'm I'm, I'm barely a human being. I have applied, though. They say that they're going to let me know if I'm a human being by the end of the summer, and fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Great, passionate, consensual sex. I guess I'm a bit boring in this regard. Um, Have you shared these things with others? I've shared it with my friends, but it's difficult to explain. It's on my radar to discuss with my therapist in a few days. Fantastic. That's fantastic. And if your therapist seems at a loss, I would say talk to another therapist. Do some research online. Or... The next time the carnival is in town, go to a psychic, but only one that smells of alcohol, because they usually 
have an in. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little relieved. I still feel like a fool. Dude, you are not a fool. You sound like a really, really sweet guy and really genuine and sensitive. And I have to read this. It, yeah, it's me tooting my horn, um, but I'm not, I'm not taking credit for it. I just want you to know on a good day how much I love doing this podcast and some of the cool stuff that I get to hear people say to me. Any comments to make the podcast better? No, this podcast helped me get clean and sober and get back into treatment. I owe you, Paul. Your podcast helped motivate me towards recovery. To which I would say, the people who helped me helped you. And it's it's like the same version of the negative ripples. You know, we were talking about the the adult that, you know, molested the child and that child, you know, violated a child, etc. Recovery is that but with good ripples. And yeah. Thank you for that, but that that's that's nice to hear. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans woman who calls herself Jenny from the block. She's gay in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, I've never been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I dissociate and have terrible event memory, and I don't recall any specific incidents, but I get a vague sense that things happened when I was in primary school. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was a strict disciplinarian. She would beat my brother and me constantly. At meals, she would strike our hands with chopsticks, and in the parentheses, I'm Chinese, and leave narrow bruises. She would swing her fist and hit me on the top of the head uh, with her knuckles. And I remember about half a dozen times that she beat me with a broomstick. She would make me kowtow to receive the blows and count. If I flinched, she would add more. One time she hit me with a broomstick 30 times. I have lower back and hip alignment issues to this day. She also constantly calls me useless in Chinese. To this day, whenever I fail my perfectionism, I hear her in my head. Any positive experiences? I have positive experiences now. Around the age of 17 or so, my mom started to change. She mellowed out. She still has flashes of the beast inside her, but she says, I love you now. It feels wrong to hold her current incarnation responsible for what she did then. Even though when I confronted her, she justified her actions by saying that I behaved badly or failed and deserved the punishment. There, There is a big gap right there between what you deserve and what you are accepting in your relationship with your mom and and her taking ownership of the past and not telling you what to do, but just letting you know, saying to an adult who did those things when you were a child, I would like an apology from you an unqualified apology from you, and if you can't, I can't have a relationship with you, that is a very reasonable thing to do. Um, And I'm not saying you should. It's a personal decision. But I just want to let you know how off the scale of what a 
basic amount of respect and compassion someone deserves from anyone, especially a parent. Darkest thoughts. I want to die. I want to be dead. This will never get better. I, those feelings are almost always connected to being in some aspect of our life that we feel trapped by. And it's usually life circumstances or a relationship with relatives or any type of loved one where we feel trapped and like we're not being fed anything. Darkest Secrets. When I was seven, my mom placed me with another mom with a daughter of her own as informal daycare. The daughter is my age. They were also disciplinarians and abusive, though not to me. My mom would hit me if I ever got anything less than perfect on homework or tests, so I would hide my homework in the trash. One day, she found it and confronted me, and I blamed the daughter for being jealous of me academically and physically threatening me to get rid of my work. My mom bought this ridiculous explanation, as did the other mom, and the abuse that the daughter faced ramped up significantly. I ran into her on a public bus once. The look on her face was hurt, fury, and hate. I know I was only seven or eight, but I am so ashamed. The blame is on the abusers. But man, we do blame ourselves as kids. We sure do. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about a strong woman choking me and using me. Sharing this makes me feel ugly. Um, it's, you know... It is just striking how the things that traumatized us or make us anxious so often are the very things that that turn us on. And I wish I had known much earlier in my life or as a kid or a teen and other people had known so that we could not be sentenced to a life of shaming ourselves for what turns us on what if anything do you wish for i want to be a completely different person someone with worth and value that broke my heart when i read this because you do have worth you do have value and you don't need to be a completely different person i think you just need to find tools to Reclaim your power. You gave your power away because it was beaten out of you as a child because you were trapped, but you're not trapped anymore. And I know how hard that is. It's terrifying, but you can do it. And that's oftentimes where that first jolt of self-esteem comes from. I remember the first time I set a boundary with my mom. I was in my 20s and I had mentioned to a therapist that when my mom and I would disagree about something that she would uh, often cry and I would give in and my therapist said why I would said well because a good son doesn't let his mom cry and she said but what about you and it had never occurred to me what about 
what I want. I just thought I'm a bad son if I don't give my mom what she wants, especially if she's crying. That's like, that's like you're, you're causing someone pain. And she said, but you're not causing the pain. That's her own issue. And so the next time I was on the phone with, with my mom, we were disagreeing about something and I wasn't giving in and she started to cry. And I said, you can go ahead and cry, but I'm not changing my stance. And like a light switch turning off, she stopped crying. And when I hung up the phone, I felt like I grew eight feet. And for me, it's all about those little moments, just stacking those together. That's what growth looks like. There's no one big, you know, well, I'm going to start wearing fedoras. <laughs> and now I got it all figured out. It's It's hard, but it's so fucking worth it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty and hollow. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Maybe it gets better? Question mark. Yeah, it can. It can. But it usually requires some type of action on our part. And, um, and that can be scary, but... You know, all right, I'm, I'm going to drink one more, drink one more. I'm reading a survey right now where somebody wrote, uh, I went for a drink afterwards and I'm clink, I cannot multitask. So maybe I'll read that one. Maybe that's the uh, universe's way of telling me this will be the last survey to read. This is a happy moment filled out by Bluebird and their gender fluid. And they write, my exams finished last night and my friends and I went for a drink afterwards. The fact that I had made friends still shocks me. And they are all wonderful people. I just felt so understood and connected to all of them. And so pleased that they have all managed to survive the horrible things this year has thrown at them. I just felt worthy of love and felt like giving so much love. I felt accepted and free for the first time in my life. And that my degree hasn't been a waste of time purely because of how I've managed to connect myself to others. Looking back to two years ago, I barely left the house and couldn't even talk to cashiers. So to realize the progress I've made and how fulfilling I've made my life really, really pleased me. Shit, it doesn't get much better than that. Human connection. It's where it's at. And I mean that in the most tired, bell-bottom, hippie way imaginable. Right now I'm giving the peace sign. And I have that awful 70s hippie hair where it wasn't shaped. It was just like like the early pictures of Black Sabbath where they gave themselves haircuts. <laughs> they just took the scissors straight across the bangs and straight across the bottom. Look at a picture of Black Sabbath in like 1969 to 71. The worst haircuts you will ever, ever see. And that's what I want you to take out of it is that in Birmingham, in the 70s, 
was the worst hair on the planet in the history of man. And no matter what happens to you, no matter what kind of trauma you experience, nothing will be worse than the bangs on Terry Geezer Butler, Bill Ward, Tony Iommi, and Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> oh. I miss Herbert. He used to come into the room when I was doing the podcast. And sometimes he his little tail would be wagging, like, when are you going to be done so I can go out or give me a treat? Or he'd start making these little noises. And he'd be going, Oh, he was such a good guy. I don't want to bring it down now. Anyway, I hope you heard something that uh, made you think, brought you comfort, opened your eyes. Maybe you heard something that pissed you off. Maybe you're going to write me an angry email about my uh, talk of uh, our country's spiral. Go ahead. I ain't afraid. I'll just tell you. You can keep crying, but I ain't changing my stance. Look at that, how I tied that up all nice and neat. Never forget that you are not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely